Today's sponsor is FreshBooks, which makes cloud accounting software that's ridiculously easy to use. FreshBooks has completely transformed how 5 million small businesses deal with their day-to-day paperwork. They do everything from invoices to expenses to time tracking. Get a 30-day free trial and start saving time and money at freshbooks.com Peter. Today's show is also brought to you by Videoblocks, a stock media company with clips everyone can afford. If you're making a video project, you should definitely check them out. With a Videoblock subscription, you get a ton of great stock clips, but you don't have to pay any royalties. You download those clips, you keep them, and use them forever. Get your yearly subscription for only $99 at videoblocks.com slash recode. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by digital media. I'm here with Brian Stelter of CNN and many other outlets, right? New York Times, mm. your publisher, your fervent Twitterer. Yes, I would say Instagram. CNN anchor and Twitterer. Those are my CNN anchor and Twitter. I'm very excited we got you. I'd be excited under any circumstances, any circumstance during the fall 2016. Particularly excited we got you this week because this week is Hillary's overheating pneumonia Twitter video, YouTube video. Hashtag Hillary Health. We're taping this on a Monday. This will come out on a Thursday. Let's move the timeline around. Talk about what happened <laughs> yesterday. You have a live TV show that goes up 11 o'clock? Yes, 11 Eastern. So it's a live show yes. um, with tape segments. Uh, and the idea is that you're talking about state of the media, is the media biased? We'll talk about all that. What happens when your show goes live? Are you aware of the Hillary story already? You must all be, All right? too aware, you know, because this news broke on Twitter sometime right after 9.30 a.m., within minutes of her near collapse. Uh, a Fox reporter, Rick Leventhal, had a tip from a law enforcement source saying that she had had a medical episode. Uh, this source described it pretty spot on, as it turns right. out. And at the time, everyone reflexively says, well, it's Fox. They're, it's probably wrong. It there probably, was they're probably a overstating lot of skepticism. It. That's right. There are a lot of skepticism, partly for good reasons and partly for bad reasons. Uh, I think there was appropriate skepticism because he was relying on a single law enforcement source. And he didn't witness it himself. And he hadn't heard back from the campaign yet. Fox made an interesting choice to go with the information without hearing from the campaign first. Other news outlets were trying to wait until the campaign either confirmed or denied the news before reporting And this it. is also Hillary's health as a story Fox has leaned on for a long time. We can talk about that as well. So that, right. again, there's the context, initial... context, of course, months and even years more of lies about her health. I would put these into two baskets since baskets are popular right now. There's one basket of lies. Uh, these are stories you see in the National Enquirer about how she has six months to live. Those are lies. There's a second basket where there's legitimate questions, some of them brought up by conservative media, about whether she has been forthcoming enough. I think we can say she has not been forthcoming enough. So there's kind of these two baskets, and as a result, there's been so much uh, curiosity about her health. And all that plays into this tweet around 930 from a Fox reporter. So what happens? Well, the pool reporters who are stuck uh, inside the ceremony, not able to leave, not able to go with Clinton, they're in the dark. They have no idea where she is. It actually gets to be a little bit worrisome, doesn't it? 10 o'clock, 10, 15, 10, 30. And of course, we're preparing for our 11 o'clock show. An eon in internet time, an eon in time. It really is actually, right? It really is. I mean, it took her only a few minutes to get up to where we knew she went, which is where her daughter's house in in, uh, in the Flatiron neighborhood. In the meantime, news outlets are sending reporters to hospitals, uh, you know, local hospitals, just in case the motorcade can be spotted outside one of the hospitals. And you're doing what? you got a TV show coming up in less than uh, an you know, hour. You know, we were doing something interesting. This has only happened uh, a few times uh, for reliable sources because normally on Sunday mornings, we're not uh, affected by breaking news. Uh, we, we usually stick to our rundown. In this case, uh, we had a whole plan, kept it going, acted like it was all going to happen. And then on the second track, 
planned for coverage of Clinton's uh, health and, and what was going on. So what that means is booking extra guests and making sure they're ready to go when the news actually. Now, are, are you you're, you don't have a lot of hair? Are you pulling your remaining hair out, <laughs> or, or are you like this is this is my dream? It's breaking news. It's about my beat. It's happening right now. All eyes are on me. This is a, or is it going to get taken away from you? Uh, breaking news is um, it is how would I describe it? You know, to the limited number of times I've been on the air during real breaking news, it's the closest thing I've experienced to being on a tightrope without a net below you. I did it in July when uh, there was that shooting, that ambush in Baton Rouge where three police officers were killed. And all of that news happened during the 11 a.m. hour. And we happened to be at the Republican National Convention, which wasn't the best setting or best backdrop uh, for that news to, uh, to be anchoring news coverage of that of that attack. Uh, it's definitely a tightrope walk because you're trying never to get ahead of what the story actually is. And you know new viewers are tuning in all the time, so you want to reset and explain to them what's going on. And also exciting, right? You're how old? 30. You've been watching and writing, watching TV and writing about TV for most of your life. I didn't come away excited on the day of the Baton Rouge attack coverage. I, I did come away excited one day. I covered a, a relatively minor earthquake that we didn't know at the time was minor. I look back now and I think, oh, well, it was it was, it was was in Napa Valley. There, there, there weren't deaths, uh, you know. Um, but it was there were good pictures. It was breaking news. It was sort of a, a curious early morning story. That was exciting because that was an opportunity to show that I could do something that I had seen others do before. I'd always wondered in the back of my mind if I had that in me to be able to, to sit there and talk and ad lib and ask the right questions and narrate and anchor for the viewers. The, the word anchor is a kind of it's the perfect word for breaking news. You are being an anchor. I cannot imagine what it's like for an anchor in a true emergency situation. And that's why those anchors are who they are. It's why they're special. Uh, and I think even as our worlds change and as, as you write about every day, as digital media takes over, I think TV anchors and news emergencies are always going to have an important value, valued role because there's something really important about being able to hold the viewer's hand. But so back to Clinton, back to 11 a.m., we went on the air at 11. Uh, I knew the news was about to be confirmed. We were waiting for the Clinton campaign to make a statement. Is there a uh, thought your show is going to get scrapped because we're just going to go to full-time Hillary? You never know for sure, but but I was expecting to be able to report the news because it was starting to be the kind of story that was so loud on Twitter and loud on Facebook and not yet loud on TV. And that's always a really tricky situation for a news organization, isn't it? When a story is unconfirmed and yet it's very, very prominent online, should a television network acknowledge it or not? I think, you know, that's that's an ongoing conversation. The boundaries of that conversation change daily, right? I, I, think, I think they do. Uh, so, so we ended up being able to, at 11.05, hand off to Jeff Zeleny, our campaign correspondent, who had the news, who had a statement, who had it confirmed, uh, and, and, and then able to discuss it after that. Uh, so I would say about half the show ended up being scrapped uh, as a result. And my gut tells me, and I think the bosses at CNN probably say this all the time, that CNN is a breaking news channel. That's what it should be, and that's what it is. So you can't uh, you can't be too wedded to your scripts. Oh yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it's a, a pain because you you put a lot of work <laughs> into building this thing. But I, I'm sure you're much more again. You don't want to say excited because you have to be you have to have gravitas. But it's an exciting thing, right? All eyes are on you. This is the story of the day. It's probably the story of the week. It may be the story of several news cycles, and and you got to sort of be out there first. Or and among then, the first people. And then around noon, after I'm off the air, the video comes out. The, one, of the, one of the several different angles of Clinton seeming to almost collapse, needing help uh, getting into the van. And that changed the story again. And there were several times during the day on Sunday as this story changed where it seemed to get worse. Right, because you could imagine, oh, well, she was stumbling or she was warm or whatever the story. I mean, she, you didn't, until you saw it, 
you didn't really understand what had happened. And once I you saw it, it's true. visceral. I think that's true. This was a um, uh, pictures or it didn't happen sort of situation. Uh, I wouldn't call it citizen journalism necessarily. I think the word citizen journalism, the phrase citizen journalism is kind of complicated. It's but a guy this was, holding a phone and publishing a video on Twitter. Yeah. I'm calling it citizen journalism. I don't want to apply the word journalism to that, but it is eyewitness video. And that eyewitness video changed the story. So that went up. And then so you then are spending the rest of your day going on and off air. This is now your story. Normally on a Sunday, you're doing your show, then you're probably watching the Eagles, I'm imagining, because I follow you on Twitter. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. I even slip in a nap sometimes on Sundays. I I find uh, live TV to be grueling. I, I'm sure it's not for the anchors who've been doing it for decades. So how, how late? I saw I was checking up late last <laughs> night. You were still popping But I on. went back to work. I, I went back to work. I, I thought that there were a number of important media angles to this story, and, and there still are. You know, The Clinton campaign has now acknowledged it should have been more forthcoming earlier in the day. It would have helped a lot if Clinton was willing to travel at all times with a protective press pool, the same way a president does, uh, where there are a number of journalists, a small number, with this person at all times, accounting for their whereabouts, specifically because of incidents like what happened on Sunday. So it seems like you have two roles. One is I'm reporting facts about the news as it happens. I'm asking people questions about the news as it happens. And you're also a media critic. Maybe you don't like that word, but we were just saying like one of the reasons the Clinton story was a story is because of the context and you're able to sort of split up. There's the bullshit and there's the dubious stuff and we can put them in different baskets. How (laughs) difficult is it for you, whether you're reporting stuff live or whether you're just doing your show day to day to sort of figure out, do you want to balance that or or do you want to go one way or the other? Well, I think of myself as a a media reporter through and through and everything about this campaign is is a media story partly because of Trump's dominance of the airwaves and uh, partly because of uh, Clinton's use of the media and relationship with the media over the course of decades. So to me, there's always a media story within what's going on. And, uh, you know, I do distinguish between critic and reporter. There, there are definitely times where I sound and talk like a media critic and write like a media critic. But I think the more valuable approach, I wonder what you think of this, is to try to be a reporter first and foremost. Try to be a person who puts new information into the world, new facts, and then sometimes forms conclusions because of it. I think this campaign sort of underlines the the limits in some ways of being a traditional media reporter or any traditional mm. reporter because and this is the false equivalence discussion. You've had it on your show. Trump blows up a lot of the traditional barriers and boundaries and, and, and limits of what is journalism, what is politics, what is truthfulness. He's crossed so many boundaries that if you spend your time saying, should the media have performed this fact-checking discussion? <laughs> right. There's lots of interesting versions of that discussion, right? right? You, get, you get bogged down in, in, in craziness. Um, and the, and there's no, there isn't a, but, but yeah. The, yeah, and there is not equivalence, the right? The audience wants us to stand up for them and speak for them. Uh, and I think we can we can usually go back to that that premise of what's best for the audience. I'll use a Donald Trump example. Uh, what was one of the ones that stands out to me from the entire campaign when he said there were thousands of Muslims in New Jersey cheering yeah. on 9/11. It's an early one for him. An early one, and, and and to me that's a it's that's one of the most provably false statements that I can point out. No photo proof, no video proof, and we all know that if there was, it would have been the biggest story of nine twelve. Uh, if if, they, if that had been happening over in New Jersey, there's so much proof that that statement's not true, and yet he stuck with it repeatedly. I don't think it serves the audience well to say what he said and then say others disagree and leave it at that. Uh, that is not good for the viewers and for the readers. It's much better, I think, much more of a service to say we have reached a conclusion and we can say it as fact that what he said didn't happen. That what he said he saw, he didn't see. It's 
better for the audience. Right. And I guess one of the problems of re- reporting on Trump now is he's sort of inundated the airwaves and every other metaphor with so much of these, it's not a debate, right? Just so many things that are not true that it seems like there is a diminishing return in even trying to fact check or point this out to the audience. If you're Why a Trump, do you say diminishing if you're, return? If you're a Trump supporter, you don't, you never care about this. And if you're, if you're someone who dislikes Trump and thinks he's a liar and a fraud, at least for me personally, because I'm in that category, each new story, each new fact check means less to me. I know there's a counter argument mm-hmm. says, no, the, the accumulated weight of this does matter. All of the weight of this does matter over time. There's a, the, the more he proves out this track record of, of being a not truthful person, um, the more compelling it is. But every time I read a story about, hey, it turns out his nonprofit's a fraud, turns out this thing's not true, turns out his wife may or may not have entered the country legally. Um, they, for one, they all stack up and they seem to have equal weight and, and it's a bit diminished weight. Mm. Um, and I get that part of your job is to not figure out where those chips are supposed to lie, but you do want to present a, overall a truthful story to your readers and, and saying, well, on the one hand, Trump has these issues. On the other hand, Hillary's staff could have been more forthright about their medical history. It seems like that's a tricky line to walk for you guys. And, and what you're expressing is, is one of the most interesting stories of the fall to me, which is feelings of either Clinton supporters or anti-Trump Americans. We spent a lot of time, I think rightfully, thinking about uh, liberal media bias and the views of Trump supporters about the media, views of Republicans traditionally about the media. It's been interesting in that for decades because there's been uh, a, a real sense of liberal media bias that too many editors and reporters are, are lean left in various ways, in ways that taint their coverage. That has been a theme for decades. And I and think what true. we're seeing, and, and there is a lot of truth to that. I, I think the fact that New York, a lot of reporters live in New York and D.C. and L.A., even those sorts of basic uh, points affect coverage. However, what I think is happening now is this increased conversation about uh, maybe conservative media bias or about a bias that Clinton supporters feel is hurting their candidate, is impeding their candidate. And I'm really interested to see how this evolves this If this fall. had been... Jeb Bush versus Hillary Clinton. All of this kind of conversation would make sense to me because mm. you could you could have a four and both sides would we're have arguments and we're used to it. And frankly, it's a little boring. And Trump seems to have blown it up. And, and Nothing made, made wrong a, with boring, right? Elections, it's okay if elections are boring. In a lot of ways, good, yeah. And, <laughs> and Trump seems to, um, a lot of ways, taken these discussions that this is, we're just wiped, we're just moving these off the table, dramatically the table off. This is pointless. This is, a, this is a ridiculous discussion to have because we're no longer playing the same game anymore. In some ways, he's a hijacker. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, I think that the phrase has been used all year long, uh, both in positive and negative ways, that he hijacked the GOP, uh, that he established a whole set of, of new rules and new standards. The question is, what kind of new standards journalists then have to apply? I mean, you got, you got a ton of credit for a, an incident where you repeatedly asked one of Trump's uh, proxies, I think it was a spokesman, right? Yeah. His Just to defend, to, to defend an untrue statement. And said, this is very exciting. And it was because it's so unusual. Hmm. Um, but usually in a normal campaign, you don't see that because you don't have someone out there with a bald face lie. And normally, I think probably you wouldn't have seen. Yeah, I'm imagining that after months of this on your part, you said, well, I'm just actually going to call you out on a bald face lie instead of letting this one slide as well. You know, I, I don't think that was in my head, but I, I, I think we have to confront the reality that all lies or all misstatements are not created equally. And there's this impulse in our politics, in our tribes to immediately say the other side did something just as heinous or even more heinous. And that just isn't true. There are times when, uh, I mean, even in a marriage, one person might, make a, a, might lie worse than the other. Even in a friendship, 
even in a family. I mean, uh, in this campaign, there are different kinds of lies. Birtherism is in some ways Trump's original sin from many years ago. You could say that's the worst lie of all uh, for him to have encouraged that, that viewpoint for a number of years. It is simply not equivalent uh, to, to put birtherism on one side and to put Hillary Clinton's conversations and, and misstatements and missteps about email practices on the other side. We, we should cover them both. Right. So what kind of, burden, what kind of burden do you have as someone talking about this stuff? And we started off the conversation. You said, well, this you know, is Hillary, where it gets hard. Hillary's had trouble in terms of disclosure and she should have been more forthright. How worried are you about saying that and, and then making it an equivalence with a, a birtherism lie? I think television in particular has a hard time with equivalence because it's a, a linear, flat medium. You are obviously only covering one story at a time. And this applies to radio as well, uh, but let's pick on television. You can't wait something. What's that? When yeah, you that's say it's right. flat. That's right. Uh, even if you were to make the graphics bolder and bigger font uh, when covering a, a more dramatic lie, they're just there are not necessarily effective ways to uh, to weight different stories. All stories seem equal on television. Now, there, there's inherent advantages on the web to this regard. I'm not sure they're always taken advantage of. When I look at my Facebook feed, every story still is the same yep. size. When yep. I look at the New York Times site, every story still is the same size. But we might have to think more about uh, how, how do we signal to the audience, to the audience that still hopefully trusts us to some degree to do this, how to signal to them what matters most and what matters but a little less. So on linear TV, you have ads. In podcasts, you have ads. We're going to stop for a second and hear from our awesome advertisers. We'll be back in one minute. Today's show is brought to you by FreshBooks, which makes super simple cloud accounting software. FreshBooks is helping more than 5 million small businesses conquer their paperwork in less time with way less stress. It only takes 30 seconds to create and send a polished, professional-looking invoice. Customers who accept online payments with FreshBooks get paid an average of three days faster. FreshBooks can even show you whether or not a client has looked at the invoice you sent them. It's like having superpowers. They also track your expenses, your cash flow, and the time you're spending on each project. FreshBooks is offering a free month to all Recode Media listeners right now. To claim your offer, go to freshbooks.com slash Peter and enter Recode Media in the section where they ask you how you've heard of us. That's freshbooks.com slash Peter to start your 30-day free trial. Today's show is also brought to you by Videoblocks, a stock media company with clips everyone can afford. With the Videoblocks subscription, you get unlimited daily downloads from a library of 115,000 HD video clips. You get After Effects templates, motion backgrounds, and cinemagraphs. On average, subscribers pay less than a dollar per download over the course of a year. Everything is 100% royalty-free. Even if you cancel your subscription, you keep what you download and you maintain your usage rights forever. Get your yearly subscription today for only 99 bucks at videoblocks.com slash recode. Hey, Brian. Hello. We were having a... Uh, Kind of a J school discussion there for a second. We can get oh, out of I'm it sorry. in a second. It's all right. I started it, but I did want to ask you one more journal. Well, I'm going to ask you a bunch. Uh, journalism school type question. Let's critique the performance of, of CNN in particular. There was a, a perception for a while that you guys were particularly friendly to Trump. That Jeff Zucker seemed to have a good relationship with him. And if you're into conspiracies, you can go back and look at the relationship between Trump and NBC, and which Zucker was running at the time. Um, how do you feel your organization has done? Take out yourself from the coverage. If, you're, if you were critiquing and reporting about CNN's coverage of, of this campaign, do you think they've done a good job? I think cable news saw in June of 2015 uh, a historic story unfolding. And that was this billionaire businessman who, who had kind of 
talked and warned and uh, flirted with running for office, but had never done it before, actually stepping into a ring. And, and the moment he stepped in, everything changed about the election. And to some degree, cable news knew that and saw that and felt that and acted upon that by covering Trump intensively it early seemed, on. It seemed like at the time you were covering it because it was a fun novelty and much more fun than covering George Jeb Bush and Rubio. To the and degree it was an, that it was Trump a, was more entertaining, it was that an was entertainment. part of the, the news event, though. Yeah. I think many have said we're going to have more Trumps in the future because of what happened uh, in 2015 and early 2016. I was immensely frustrated by the end of 2015 that other candidates weren't learning more from Trump. And when I say learning more from Trump, I don't just mean be entertaining and say provocative and offensive things. I also mean uh, if, you're a, if, you're, if you're a candidate uh, and you'd like to reach the highest number of viewers, come speak in prime time. And it was interesting to watch CNN that summer and fall and, and other channels as well. Uh, we would take Trump rallies live in prime time. And, and they would obviously rate very well. They were also legitimate news events. And other candidates weren't doing it. Now, you could say Sanders was sometimes. And it's true. There were times when we were... Yeah, we, my Twitter when, feed, oh, CNN or whomever cuts away from this, but they go to Trump a lot. I do think there's an argument to be made that Trump was inherently more newsworthy, more unpredictable. I, I would often think to myself... Why wouldn't Sanders come out and surprise us with a new comment, a new twist? Uh, doesn't have to be offensive, right? You don't just—it doesn't necessarily—you don't have to—you don't have to engage in name calling. There were times Sanders was having rallies and they weren't getting live coverage the way Trump's rallies were getting coverage. You know, part of me would think, why wasn't he trying to make more news, surprise people, be more provocative? And and that may not be an entirely fair critique. Uh, I, I understand. Might be because he's a politician, not an entertainer. If you want to be not, flip about it, absolutely. There was definitely uh, something about Trump and his entertainment value that appealed to CNN and appealed to cable news. Trump knew media like nobody else. He still does in terms of politicians. He, he feels it viscerally. He's running a media campaign and an anti-media campaign simultaneously and pretty effectively. Uh, I don't think there's anything to the idea that the cable news channels intentionally weighted the scale for, for business reasons. I just don't, I, I've never seen any evidence that these outlets work that way. Things that look intentional are almost always accidental, both good and bad. Right, but they're all, they're all very excited and they're forthright about that, right? From Les Moonves on down Les, at CBS saying, I don't know if it's good for the country, but it's great for CBS. Talking about advertising revenue, yep. of course, yep, he's but been the, taken out of context. No, but he's talking about ratings. He's talking about what Trump has done for this election cycle for ratings. Your bosses are quite clear that this has been a tremendous year for you guys. I interviewed your boss's boss. It's yep. the best year ever. I, I listened to that and and I feel it just in my one hour. Uh, you know, our numbers are twice as high as they were this time last right. year. Well, that's actually not true because the election was, uh, well, yeah, it still is pretty true. You know, I, I try to pay attention to what the audience is interested in. And right now they are interested in this election. Right. Partly out of disgust and re revulsion, uh, partly out of curiosity and excitement. Uh, there is so much interest around this election, which, you know, um, which gets to the historic nature of both candidates. Trump is historic. Clinton is historic. And they're both being covered that way. Last CNN introspection question for you. Um, seems like less of a story now, maybe just because we moved on other stuff. But Corey Lewandowski being hired by CNN at the time, lots of anguish and, and right. real flagellation. Right. Um, 
I can make the argument that this is no different than hiring any other former politician to come work at a, 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 mm. a, a on a newscast. The fact that there's zero gap between him leaving the campaign and coming on to you guys um, is different, and you could argue that he was still getting paid, and that's another thing. Severance. Right, there's d- debate about that. Is that something that if you were not working at CNN, you would have covered more critically, or do you think you did this job you would normally do? I'll acknowledge that it was probably the, the toughest CNN inside CNN story of the year. And I knew that at the time, which is why I was glad we were able to devote so much time to it on the air. The experience I've had at CNN is, is one of autonomy. Meaning when we hired Lewandowski, I wrote a story up and we put it up right away. uh, Same way I would have done at the New York times. And then on the air, having a 10 minute conversation about it where I said, listen, this is controversial. And there's people inside this newsroom that don't like this idea. Thinking about that a few months later, I'm just kind of thinking to myself now, is there still discomfort? And I don't think I've sensed that any more discomfort. It's the new normal. Maybe that's what it is. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen him in the green room, seen him in the makeup room. There were good reasons for that discomfort early on. And I think, you know, CNN, you know, on, on the air has said when, when he's getting severance payments and things like that, there's definitely no confusion on the air about where he stands and about what his past is. So it does seem to me that controversy has died down. But I was, you know, I was, you know, I want to show off here, but I was proud that we covered it so extensively on the air that summer. Anytime a media outlet is covering itself, there are uh, perceptions of difficulty. And certainly this summer, Fox News has not covered the Roger Ailes scandal the way that it would have. I don't think think a media company is ever going to be the company that covers itself well. The Times has tried with some degree of success at various times. It's, I'm, I'm comfortable with the idea that it's always going to be an outside organization that covers that company better. What do you mean by better? Better. They're going to they're going to be more thorough. They'll be less sparing. They won't have to worry, no matter whether it's conscious or unconscious, about upsetting their boss or someone next to them or someone on the floor mm. above them. I would put this test on it, though. Uh, the test I sometimes apply is: if this was happening at MSNBC or Fox instead of CNN, what would I do about it? And if Corey Lewandowski had been covered by, hired by MSNBC, I think I would have done maybe eight minutes on it, maybe not quite 10, but I would have given it almost the same amount of time. And I think that's a, a decent standard in terms of uh, television time mm-hmm. for me to apply. So, fair enough. You think you did a fair job. I accept that. Well, I, I look back and I think at the time, this was highly controversial. It was, it was one of the, the most controversial things that had happened at CNN in years. But... Uh, reflecting on it now, it does feel like the internal discomfort has died down. Do you ever wish, hey, I wish I was at the New York Times so I could write this story about what's going on at CNN based on what I know? Not because I want to out and discomfort my, my coworkers, but holy cow, there's some amazing stuff that you can see once you're on the inside. You did a great job as a there media reporter at the Times, but now you know so I much wish more. I could restart my blog TV newser. Yeah. Because I think I have a much better understanding of how television news operates. So let's talk about that. You then start, I did 10 years ago you, when I was running my blog. You started a blog in college, prototypical blog. Were you in your basement or were you in a dorm room? Uh, I was in a dorm room uh, during the school year and in a basement of the summer. You were a guy who wrote about t- the business of TV news because you loved it. Why did you love it? Why did you get into it? TV news and cable news in particular has such an influence over the country. For better and for worse. So as a teenager, how do you how do you? Well, I was picking up on that because idea? I felt like the New York Times and the other news outlets that covered media at the time weren't respecting cable news enough. And what I mean by that is, in 2003, when the Iraq invasion started, cable news drove the coverage. There was, for the first time in, in history, live coverage 
of an invasion as it happened with reporters on the back of tanks. Sometimes at night, the, the nightly news anchors would, would only be covering stories that, because they had happened on cable news during the day. And yet, I felt like media reporters were still too focused on the nightly news. But you sound like a 30-year-old sort of discussing I'm a history of news. Soul. No, I'm but an as old a soul. teenager, so what, dra- what drives a, a teenage boy? Right then. I started a version of my blog about- What drives about- a teenage boy to start writing a defense of cable news or, or stoking- It's just not a normal thing for a kid uh, to be interested in cable news. That is true. But but I also had started a blog about Goosebumps books and Nintendo games there you before go. then. I, I always was trying to create the websites that I wanted to read. And- that's probably what I continue to feel today, you know, just write the story that I, that I want to have someone write. Right? So you're, I mean, you're, writing, basic. you're writing TV news or you're getting people are grownups are paying attention to your work. Right. So the, the wonderful thing about TV news was because there was no other blog like it, there was no other obsessive home for cable news stories in 2004, 2005, the tips were rolling in, you know, Greta Van Susteren just left Fox was the first anchor to acknowledge the blog. She pr- linked to it. I was about to say promoting it. She didn't promote it, but she linked to it, which helped get gain traffic. Jeff Jarvis linked to it early on, helping me gain traffic. Media people love reading about themselves. And and other media well, people. of course, of course. And the, you know, this the site needed to exist. You know, I I feel like it's the same way Recode needs to exist. There need to be these hubs for industries, for uh, you know, um, these sorts of areas. And I guess I thought I understood television back then. And I learned a lot. By, and to by be clear, blog, did you have but, any family history, any connection with someone? No. You were you were in Maryland, no, right? No, my dad. Uh, before he passed away, my dad repaired Gloria Borger's appliances. He was an appliance repairman, and so I knew Gloria Borger over email. I think that was my only connection to a television news. So you're person. just a guy watching TV, Borger writing about CNN. it. Yeah, uh, uh, writing about it and and wanting to learn and wanting to understand it, wanting to know why it does the things it does. You know. Um, even today, you know, the cable news picks certain stories, focuses on those stories, makes those stories bigger, makes those stories matter. And it's a power that uh, I don't think is necessarily always written about and understood. So, so uh, this novelty kid reporter working out of your, your, your college newspaper office and in, yep. in your, your parents' home. And then you go pretty much straight from there to the Times. Do I have that right? That's right. Well, the Times hired me to kind of keep blogging. Uh, I think the idea in 2007 was bring in a, a digital expert at a time when the newsroom needed more people that had digital uh, backgrounds. Digital expert was a guy who could type on, a, on the internet, right? <laughs> sort of. 2007. Sort of and I had no expectation that I'd be writing a lot for the print paper. Once I got there, I realized, well, you know, this paper needs to be filled every day. There's a lot of empty holes in it, and uh, and there's a lot to write about. So I was able to become more of a traditional reporter at the Times just well, by virtue of that. And did you think this is the holy cow, I'm at the Times, I'm going to, I, this is what I want to do. I can't believe I looked into this. Or were you thinking, eventually I want to get on CNN where I can cover Hillary Clinton? I have to admit, I never thought about getting into TV. And I, and I look back now and I wonder why, because it feels like a much more natural fit for me. But no, the, the um, I like to appear in as a guest once in a while. It's, it's good to know what it's like to be uh, down the barrel of the camera lens. It's also good to know what it's like to be covered and be written about and be misquoted. So it was a good experience once in a while to be on TV. But the CNN job happened because Howie Kurtz went from CNN to Fox. CNN needed to fill the reliable sources time slot. They had auditions on the air. And eventually they came to me with what, this job description that, that I describe as a, a three-legged um, uh, seat. Write stories all week long, go on TV and talk about those stories. And then the show on Sunday both captures what happened that week and the next week. And to me, that what I love about that is that all three of those reinforce each other. 
and make all the, the others better. So we're just telescoping the entire time you go from kid blogger to New York Times reporter and not and you were on the sideline there. You were you were in the mix, you reported important stories. That's the job that even today most people aspire to, right? A version of that. The, some sort of New York Times beat reporting job where you were well-read and have enormous influence. Yeah, the Times is perceived to be like Harvard, right? You, you go there and you get tenure and you never leave. Yeah, that's uh, the, that's one of the ways to describe it. Our mutual friend David Carr talked about the influence of the Times. So when CNN comes to you, and you probably went to CNN and you started talking about that, were you thinking, man, I don't think I can leave the Times? Or were you thinking, no, of course I'm going to go get go get a TV job it if was, it's possible? It was a no-brainer because of the chance to learn TV. It's like being invited to go to graduate school and they're going to pay for it. Uh, and that's how I viewed the Times also. You get to learn how to be a newspaper reporter. I look back now and, uh, you know, Carr was invaluable to me, giving me guidance about what to do. And now that I'm there, and especially after he died, I came around to the idea that the best thing I can do is be be a reporter and who happens to be on TV. And not try to not try to be the the, the blowhard anchor. Uh, I don't have the hair for that anyway. But just to, to be a real reporter and, and not to ever let that part of the job go, because that's the most interesting part of the job. At the Times, and, and still here at CNN, you are putting out a ton of content, right? So there's the stuff you do on air, your actual job. You're tweeting prolifically, I think a little less than you used to. I think you're on Instagram. Uh-oh. You've got an entire website you're running, right? With multiple reporters. Yeah, but I would say that on air is not... I, I, I say the foundation of my job is writing stories for the web. So Beat Reporter is sort of the yeah. core of it, and then occasionally you Because go I TV. go on TV. Here, here's the way I think about it, and, and the way I, I hope and I think more and more TV reporters approach their jobs... I go on TV because I wrote a story. So I go on TV because I have something to report. To the extent that TV reporters are just reading scripts others have handed to them, I think, and I'm betting, that that model is slowly going away. You think you're going to have to be someone who sort of creates your own job? Uh, someone, who, someone who actually gathers the facts that you're sharing. Now, that doesn't work in every case. Listen, there are times, especially in breaking news, where I'm reading a script someone else has, has handed to me. That's, no the, that's, the, that's the, the print guy's description of a, of a newsreader. Is you're just a newsreader. And, and that description still applies to some degree and even to me on some days. But the more interesting kind of television reporting is from real reporters. And you look at who Vice has hired lately. You look at who CNN's hired lately. Television networks continue to hire the best from print, the best from digital. And learning TV is the easier part. So uh, are you in a fight with Sean Hannity or Sean Hannity's fighting you? (laughs) Uh, I think Sean Hannity is in a fight with me, I guess. That, I mean, he's uh, called me a little pipsqueak, the, and he said I should be fired. So this seems exciting, right? You've got uh, no. now the most one of the two or three most powerful people at Fox News has singled you out. He's raising your profile. I don't think so. It, I mean, listen, Bill O'Reilly had, had attacked me years ago, and, 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 and what these guys never do is confront the substance of the critique. Do you think— If that, Hannity were to, to, to talk about the substance of my critique— that would be a fight to have. You think he means it, or, think it's, or do you think it's, it is show business? I think it's, um, hmm, I'm trying to choose my words. Hannity is an excellent broadcaster, and he's an entertainer. And some of what he's doing is for entertainment value. I don't know if that's why he's attacking me, but uh, you know, the, the, the point I was trying to make about Hannity was he brings Donald Trump on. Trump says things that are dangerous, and Hannity doesn't challenge him at all or correct him at all or, or push back at all. Hannity is just handing Trump the mic. And that, even if you want Trump to win the way Hannity does, is not responsible. I, I would argue that when, when Donald Trump is on television saying the election is going to be rigged, which 
has implications for the integrity of our elections and has implications for November 9th, the day after the election. Uh, you've got to push back. And, and Hannity doesn't push back. Hannity has a lot of things, but pushback is not in him. Under, under if this is a normal year, the, the fall of Fox News, fall of Roger Ailes would be the biggest story of the year. Mm. Um, there's going to be some kind of story after the election. Um, I guess Trump could theoretically win, so that's a different story. If Trump doesn't win, there's talk that he's going to create a media business. Right. Uh, do you think he creates another Fox News, or do you think it's a Donald Trump website with an occasional video cast? <laughs> or a Glenn Beck? I, I have not thought through enough what it what it looks like. Um, I don't think it looks like Fox News, but I don't have an answer for what it looks like instead. I assume that he can make a lot of money and gain a lot of subscribers with a Netflix style streaming service. But to what end? You know, what what is he? How does that benefit him two or four years from now? It seems like a lot of work for for one thing, and I, I can't imagine he's going to risk his own capital. Um, I think he could definitely do the Glenn Beck model. Right, mm-hmm. uh, the Glenn Beck model has problems now too. You talked about being in the barrel of a gun of, of the camera. I just scribbled that metaphor, but but taking <laughs> criticism generally. Yeah. Um, prior to this job, you tweeted a lot. You shared a lot. I knew that your father had died when you were yeah. young because you've written about it. I knew a lot about. It. I knew about your dating life because <laughs> um, you tweeted. You had an entire Twitter account dedicated to your weight loss. Yeah. yeah. Um, now that you're on TV, now that you're in the middle of this this angry ugly election, does it make you reconsider your public profile? No, I don't think it has consciously, but maybe it has subconsciously. Uh, I tried, I I don't think I pulled back on how much I share. I actually find myself embracing Twitter more. The more I feel Twitter maybe having a hard time or or seeming weak or failing, the more I try to hold onto it and tweet more and love Twitter more, just from the perspective of a user who doesn't want it to go away. Look, you're, a white, you're probably, a white straight male with money and influence, so you're, it's different than people who complain about uh, getting beat up on Twitter. But that said, I can't remember if I was trying to DM you or G- mail you. And you said, the comments, you said, I'm, I'm tur- I'm, I don't check this stuff out because I get so many nasty comments. I, in the past couple of months, I do think I've had to reassess how I look at mentions, look at the, the notifications tab, whether it's using the quality filter more or just not looking. Yeah, it, even though I know what I see is not nearly as ugly as what women on the site see and what, you know, full-on political reporters on the site see and in other groups. Uh, it is, it is, it is nasty. However, I want to know what the viewers are thinking. And I have no better way to see it than, than Twitter and, and viewer email, but Twitter. You think Twitter, so, you think Twitter is, is a reasonable proxy for what people are Not thinking. a proxy, but it's the best thing I have. I, until I get 100 representative audience members who are all forced to respond after I speak, I, there's no other way to really get that instant interaction, that instant reaction. And I got to say, when I, when I the thing about Twitter and TV, there are times when you're on TV and you're talking, you look at Twitter and you feel like no one's listening. There are other times you feel like the whole world's listening. And Twitter, to the extent they can keep capturing that magic, uh, it is magic. What happens next year? What do you do next year? This, this, no matter what, the story will not be as compelling. A, I don't know if that's true. B, assuming it is true, there were, you know, there were wild stories last year. There were wild stories two years ago. The news cycle in general isn't, isn't slowing down. Um, is this beat enough to keep you occupied, or at some point do you move on to something else? Oh, media, I'm, I'm addicted. You're all Aren't in. you? Yeah, it's limiting in some ways. How? Well, because I think there's a natural expectation that well, after at some point you'll, you'll move on to this speed. And, and maybe that's an older way of looking at journalism, that you'd sort of do the four stations of the cross. And eventually- no, I think people still think of it that way. Some people do. I, I Personally, though, 
I love this specialty. I think specializing is still the way to go. And I feel like I'm only just beginning to figure out how to cover media the best way I can. I, I know that sounds kind of like maybe it sounds Pollyannish or something. I was going to say fake I, humble. That, no, no oh, that's even worse. <laughs> I look back at stories I wrote five years ago and I'm embarrassed by them. And I'm sure there's stories I write today that I'll be embarrassed by in five years. I still feel like I'm getting better at it. Yeah, it and is nice to get better. As long as I still have that feeling, then I wouldn't want to get off the The beat. worry is that you either get jaded and or you start uh, ignoring interesting news stories or and or you, you age out of some stories. I haven't sensed you're still, any of you're that still, yet. <laughs> you're still a pup. Uh, I, well, it goes back to what I said about TV news. Or the reason I'd like to, you know, not right now and probably not, never, but I could do such a better job covering television news today than I did 10 years ago. And I think I do. And that's partly why I started a newsletter so that I could put all of my nightly thoughts and feelings and reactions and tips into a newsletter. I'm continuing to try to find ways to, let me put it this way. And, I, and this, is, this really did come out of Carr's death for me. Like what's the highest value add I can have as a journalist? What's the best thing I can do? Well, the reason why I always stayed up late on Sunday nights refreshing the Times website for Carr's column was because he was putting some new information into the world. Most of his columns had a point of view and a conclusion, but they, they almost always put some new facts and new information into the world. Even, uh, you know, I feel like that's the hot, the, the, for me, for, for me, it's kind of inside the CNN orbit. I can be a lot of things if I wanted to be. I can be a talking head who just opines, or I can be just a host to ask questions. The highest value I think I can have is to put new facts into the world. And I don't succeed at that every day, and I end up rewriting other people's stories and regurgitating press releases and all that stuff that we feel like we should spend less time doing, and I'm guilty of all of it. But to the extent that I can spend more time putting new facts out uh, and then reaching conclusions, that's, that's, the, that's the fun part of the job. See, I was going to put a button on it right there, but then I forgot. There's your newsletter. There's your, when you're uh, done with at the end of your day, you then do, create that newsletter. Do you think I newsletter. sound too, too um, like optimistic and sunny about journalism here? No, I'm glad you love your job. It's great. <laughs> it's awesome that you love your job. It, it, people who love their job are great, and it's a, a bummer that more And don't you feel like there's fewer media reporters right now than there used to be? I think there are there's more so than There's so many ever. more critics, and there's so few reporters. No, I think there's a ton of really good, really strong media reporting. Um, you do. I'm acutely aware of it because I'm like, oh, shit, I lost that story. So and so. Oh, and that one, and that one, and I lost that one. There's a lot of really good stuff out there right now. I think it's great. You don't think there's a ton of stories that aren't being written? I'm sure there are, and I think different publications go through different strengths, but I'm, right. look, as, as someone who's like trying to keep up and trying to figure out what I want to write about, and can I get a scoop here? Can I write something new here? There's a ton of stuff out there. And, and when well, I read your right newsletter, other people's <laughs> newsletters, I like, oh, well, I shouldn't bother writing about that. That's a Well, you're right, you're right that every day there's a story I wish I had written that some other media reporter has beaten me to. But I just have this sense that so many people are spending so much time writing criticism that there's not as much time calling the companies for comment. There's not as much time interviewing the people that are actually doing the work. There's not as much time actually reporting. And there's a lot. There's a lot of criticism going on. There's a ton of criticism, but it's it's, it's more evident because there's many more places to read and make, that's true and see that criticism. And um, criticism's great. Um, when I hear from PR people who go through a day of hell, a day of 25 stories written about their company, and only two reporters called them, that's a huge problem in our media environment. Huge. Look, the, in, in the old days, I mean the old days which are not very long ago, there were two places you were going to read serious media reporting. It was the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and now there are many more. There are many more. But I'm not sure, well, 
We'll agree to disagree. Yeah, I'm not going to be the cranky old man complaining about all the <laughs> all the Twitterers and bloggers. A few minutes ago, you were telling me how young I am. So I know, I'm glad it's good. I'm glad we flipped it. I'm glad you came. I really appreciate your time <laughs> on a day like this. I hope you get time off in November. Thanks for your time, Brian. Maybe December. Okay, in December. Uh, in the meantime, from now to December, December, January, you guys can listen to all of this. You're smart. You listen to this podcast. I don't need to tell you that you can go get it at iTunes, Google Play Music, etc. Kara Swisher has an awesome podcast. So does Lauren Good. Many more. You can find them all. Thank you to our awesome sponsors, FreshBooks and Videoblocks, who make all this awesome free content available to you. Thank you to Digital Media, which distributes all this stuff to you. Digital Media is a real company with a confusing name. Brian, thanks for your time. Thanks Thank you, you guys for listening. See you next week.